You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Welcome to Radio Primavera Sound, uh, and today we have as a very special guest, writer, creative and book club hostess, Lena Abascal. Lena is the author of the excellent Never Be Alone Again, How Bloghouse United the Internet and the Dance Floor, a book that examines the wonders of the bloghouse era. We spoke Paris Hilton, dodgy MP3s and the nascent bloghouse revival. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank, thanks for thanks for coming on, and I really enjoyed the book. Um, oh my gosh, thank you. For, I mean, for a number of reasons, really. I mean, I've, I found Bloghouse quite an interesting phenomenon. I, I think because it was one of the I was slightly, just ever so slightly too old for it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that kind of thing fascinating. But, oh, I'm um, sure from that vantage point, you're like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> well, no, I, I remember. I remember like. When I when I say I was slightly too old, it's like I saw I saw a lot of it, if you see what I mean. But I probably didn't quite get it by being too old, if you see what I mean. I didn't mm-hmm. fully enjoy it or I didn't fully immerse myself in it because by that point I was 26 or 27 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, really obvious question, but why why write a book about Blockhouse? Um, yeah, I mean, obvious question, but also fair, because like this is the first one. Um Well, I'm a writer and, you know, I've been covering music for a while. I had a column at Vice called Around the World in 80 Raves, which was kind of, um, it was a column that ran weekly for about a year. That was just each um, installment was a different city and a different recurring party there. So like a weekly or a monthly, it was all just about how like different people partied. And that was all post blog house. Um, So I kind of had some experience writing about the space, but at the time of blog house, I was a blogger writing for an mp3 blog Um, and when I say writing I mean it wasn't very prose heavy but so this moment has always been really important to me and just something that was you know the same way you didn't totally connect because you were a little bit outside of it I was so so deeply inside of it like high school and college this was my life Um, so now as like a 30 something year old who's a writer um, realizing that there's sort of this rare white space about this era there was really only a couple articles written about it, but nothing at length and nothing that really contextualized what happened with where we're at now instead of just an oral history. So I was like, okay, I can do that. I have the connections. I think I can pull it off. So it's interesting you said it was really big. You grew up in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, that's where I live now, but um, I moved away. So I, I during this period... Um, I lived in a combination of LA, then I moved to San Francisco for college. And then on the absolute, mm, I guess it was already over by then. But once we were in like the American dubstep slash EDM boom, I was in New York. So how, I mean, how big was it? Because like, I mean, we have, I have the impression probably wrongly that, you know, before EDM, I mean, obviously like dance music house techno came from the US, but I can't get the impression that, it wasn't like a big commercial hit until, until EDM times, basically. And you're totally right about that. I mean, like this was sort of an interesting thing operating in the gray area where like when you were in it, it felt like the biggest thing in the world because just in Los Angeles, which again was like arguably the capital of this 
while Ed Banger was in Paris, I think there were more parties with this music in LA than anywhere else. Every single night of the week, all seven, there was at least one weekly party playing this kind of music. So it was dominating the nightlife space in counterculturally, but also on the bleeding edge of mainstream because you have people like DJ AM and you just have the proximity to Hollywood, the location. So you have people like Nicole Richie, Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan going to like Steve Aoki and DJ AM's parties and, you know, being in these like tabloid magazines. So while most of it was 200 people or less at all these underground parties, it was reaching this sort of mainstream status that was sort of unprecedented. But then there also were, as I mentioned in the book, like there's the parties that people from other countries would have heard about, for example, you know, Cinespace, Dimac Tuesdays, but there were other parties that maybe didn't get the same like level of clout or have the same cachet, but one called dance on Tuesday nights, it had 3000 attendees every week. I mean, like that's major, you know? So it really, it, it had a big audience here, not as big as anything compared to like electric daisy carnival vegas festival boom edm but compared to any other dance music moment in a in a while it was pretty big in the u.s was it very different in la and new york well by the time i moved to new york which is where i went after i graduated college it was 2012 so it was a different landscape as i mentioned in the book But in 2011, I was doing an internship at MTV and I was going to New York for a couple months at a time. And at that moment, I was going to a lot of fool's gold parties, a lot of trouble and bass parties. Um, I mean, by default, LA and New York are different. And there's always that debate, like, which one's better, blah, blah, which I just won't even participate in because it's just like apples and oranges. It doesn't make any sense to me. But um. Yeah, I think New York didn't have that sort of like trashy Hollywood adjacent element of it, though that that element was very fun. Also, L.A. is just like the way that you party is different. Like I was also going to a lot of like suburban house parties that were playing this kind of music um, and kind of like sort of South L.A., South Central, which there wasn't an equivalent to that in New York. Um, But I think that also has to do with the times that I was in each place. Like when I was in LA, I was finding out about all these events on MySpace. By the time I was in New York, I was finding out more about them like on Twitter or Instagram or even Facebook events or just word of mouth. So I found it very interesting in the book where you're talking about, you know, people like Paris Hilton going to the parties. And I wondered if people like that, if we can, call, I don't know if we can say people like that, but you know, let's say more mainstream famous people. Yeah. Were, were they, do you think they were attracted just because it was a big thing? Or do you think there was something in the music that they, that they could, you know, they clung onto that, that attracted them? You know, I think perhaps for dance music, this might've been an easier entry point for people who weren't as experienced with it because a lot of it has vocals or like vocal edits. Um, And I do think a lot of it has kind of a little bit more of like a traditional pop music structure, like choruses and whatnot. It's not like an eight minute, like progressive song. Um, So maybe it was a little easier for them to dance to the same way they would have danced to like a rap song at a club. Cause you know, a lot of these are some of a lot of blog house is rap and singing. Um, But also maybe, 
I mean, I think they probably just got tired of the stuff they were going to. It's like the same old thing, you know, and they're like, oh, this is fresh and different, but not like we're in like an underground tunnel listening to techno, you know, like that would be a bridge too far. But I think perhaps this is like, you know, a kind of cooler version of something they understood. And it was co-signed by people that they recognized. So I think it wasn't that foreign for them. Um, so I can kind of see the appeal, you know, you're going to the same top 40 bottle service nightclub and then you're like, oh, down the street, there's these people doing this really cool thing where everyone's actually dancing. People are dressed really cool and differently. Um, this party that they would go to had a keg on the dance floor that was just free. Like it was just something different. And I think that's, that's pretty refreshing when famous people, I assume, just get into their little groove and they kind of just don't leave it because they're comfortable where they are. How about, I mean, the other thing I was wondering in, in that level, again, maybe this isn't quite uh, something you can answer, but like, it's, I was living in London at, at the time. Um, and as I said, I, I, I was slightly too old, but I did, you know, sort of saw it happening. Did you get the impression it was very different in London and Paris than, again, it was in, in the US? Well, I do think the US just takes everything to a different level, like, for better and often worse. So I think, I think it probably was a bit different. Like even looking back some, obviously there's a lot of music from France in this space. I think some of them were hesitant to play into the nostalgia element while I was researching this book, which was predominantly 2019, a little bit of 2020. And now, you know, quote unquote, Indie Sleaze is having this moment and Ed Banger is posting their old flyers. And I'm like, where was that energy when I wanted to talk to you about this? It's your so book. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if perhaps they, you know, and rightfully so. I understand like when I was going to interview Justice, they had said yes. And then they sort of realized it wasn't about the new music and they're like, okay, we're not prioritizing this. And I do understand that, but I think, um, I don't know. I wonder if maybe the way that they were, the way the U S is sort of like rose colored glasses looking back on nostalgia doesn't apply elsewhere. Um, I do think that like a party like trash, which obviously is such a long running event, Errol Alkins party that it includes blog house, but also extends past it and before it. Um, I can imagine there, I never got to attend that party. I would love to. Um, it's, it's had similarities in its ways. Like everyone I spoke to was like, you know, they would play like ABBA and the Smiths and just sort of like different seventies, eighties, nineties music, like pop songs mixed in with the dance music or like indie rock kind of like tongue in cheek, sort of kitschy. There was a lot of like fashion school students doing crazy outfits. It kind of birthed its own scene of micro celebrity, MySpace celebrity. Like, I think there's definitely parallels there. I think the ethos behind all of these events was very similar. Um, so I can't, I don't know because I wasn't there, but from everyone I spoke to, there's a through line connected to all of it, I think. It's interesting because A-Track says in the intrang, in, in his intro to the book um, that practically all current music is a direct descendant of the Blockhouse era, which seems like a very big thing to say. I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, I think it's a pretty bold statement, um, but I, I kind of understand what he's saying in the sense that like he wrote that in, I think, like 2021 summer. Um, 
and the stuff that he references, like BTS, Dua Lipa, like if Bloghouse was very influenced aesthetically and sonically by the 80s, and then now a lot of pop music is sort of having these 80s synths, very nostalgic moment, I can definitely see that there. Um, and then, you know, you have even like people like Kesha and sort of like white girl talk rap coming out of people like Uffy. Um, obviously, that's no longer like en vogue, really, but... I do think it's a it's a bold statement, but I do think if if given a little more time to speak on it, he could likely make like a chart that shows the flow. And it is interesting to see like a lot of the, you know, studio music producers, people whose names, not the Calvin Harris's and Atrax and Diplos of the world, but people now operating more behind the scenes. A lot of them are from this era. Um, that's sort of where a lot of them have settled, you know, if their own music didn't become extremely popular. A lot of them are in the industry sort of working behind the scenes. So I'm not surprised that there's a little flavor of that in a lot of what's coming out now because these people are all sort of in their like, like mid late thirties career moments actually having access to mainstream. Like Benny Blanco, right? Didn't he start yeah. in Blockhouse era, I think? I mean, he, he was definitely around. I mean, he's someone who like, every pop he makes like every pop song now um I I don't he wasn't really like at the parties per se but I think he was he was like lingering on the peripheral so uh, we kind of talked a bit about it earlier but um is Bloghouse having a revival at the moment I mean one of the one of the reasons that made me think that it is 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 your book um but th there is there is more to it there seems to be a nostalgia for that age. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I it's one of those things where like, as you know, writing a book takes a long time. And so like the mindset and the climate you're in when you begin and where you're at when it comes out can vary so greatly. So, you know, this book came out in late, late, late 2021. I started working on it in 2018. I never thought that this moment was going to come so perfectly timed with the release of the book. In fact, I had plenty of mental breakdowns being like, I've missed the 20 anniversary of this. I've missed this or whatever. And being like, is anyone going to care? Um, so, you know, as I was gearing up to release the book, it's all written and ready to go. Some of my friends that are more in tune with like TikTok culture, which is just a choice I've made. I'm like, I don't want to be on any new social media. I kind of just want to be off of all of it. Um, I still have Instagram though they started sending me these trend posts about indie sleaze, which is essentially uh, more about the aesthetic and the fashion, the latter end of Bloghouse into sort of 2012, 2013 Tumblr era, which to you, I totally understand if it feels like, oh my God, what difference could one to two years make? But it really, it really was the end of one thing and the beginning of another. But I started thinking like, dang, you know, trend cycles used to say they moved at 20 years. But now that with the speed of social media, it seems like a lot closer to 10 years. So if we're in 2022 and people are nostalgic for 2012, that that really adds up. So I was able to sort of, you know, identify with an audience that maybe isn't familiar with the word blog house or the specifics of the music, but remembers the look, even if they were like high schoolers or earlier at the time, just looking at the party photos online. And they're so nostalgic for it that I think the book maybe had a little bit more impact with those people. Um, in terms of the music, I mean, it's also funny because right now in the U.S., there's a lot of shows about like 
um, failed tech founders, one of them being the Theranos situation and another one being, or this isn't failed, but like the birth of Uber. And both of those were like in this era. So the music supervision is like passion pit and like the strokes, but then also like um, the rapture and like Louis the 14th and things like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this music won't escape me. I go into Top Shop and it's just playing and I'm like, oh my God, I want to think about something else. But it does seem like it's around a little bit more than I really would have thought and that it had been for the last like 10 years. I was going to say on the timing thing, one thing I really like about the book is you do, you set a definite time. You're like, well, some people may disagree with this, but I'm going to say 2006 to 2011. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, 2000. Five to 2011. Oh, no, 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 no. I think 2006, 2011. You're absolutely right. That five-year period. But do you still listen to the music? Right now, I'm not really trying to listen to it because I've been listening to it so much for writing and doing some radio shows where I'm like selecting songs. But I will say that like mixing it in with other stuff when I'm driving, um, I do enjoy that. And I, I do like a lot of it. Like while some of it hasn't aged amazingly, I think because I have this nostalgic moment and just because I think some of it is good like if you play me the A-track um heads will roll remix I will want to dance it's interesting because one of the things about Blockhouse is um it's a a musical thing and a technological thing again you explain this um in the book can you separate the two things or are they do they sort of intrinsically go together Hmm. I think that they intrinsically go together because kind of, as I mentioned in the book, like unlike a lot of genres and because of this, I really had a lot of thoughts about like, do I even want to include the term blog house in the title, blah, blah, blah. It's so much less of like a blanket sonic similarity than it is a similarity in the distribution of the music through these blogs, hence the name. So I think that if you eliminate the infrastructure that was spreading this music and connecting the people, then the community wouldn't exist or would be very different Um, because it was sort of this, you know, for us, by us, like hand-to-hand curation that was done through these like not algorithms, but human people, you know, making these playlists or linking these illegal MP3s on their blogs, not even for money. I think that's kind of, the core ethos of the entire era. So I do think that they really go hand in hand. Given that the music was distributed in a large part on on blogs and there were unofficial releases. Absolutely. Is there a lot of it missing these days? Yeah, I mean, there's that's a big thing. Like, because a lot of this music um, was distributed on these blogs through, like, Zshare and Mediafire, just, like, a link that you would click and download to your iTunes library or your desktop, whatever... Um, whereas now very few people own music, but a lot of that music didn't ever get to transfer to the streaming services when that became the viable option because of uncleared samples and because of unofficial remixes and because of bitrate. So while people that were making proper albums, like, you know, digitalism, spank rock, justice, what have you, that stuff moved over, um, you know, 2006, seven releases on Spotify, but things like um dirty south dance like the mixtape a track remix mixtape like that cannot exist on spotify legally and i think some of it exists a little bit on soundcloud a little bit on youtube but 
as technology has shifted, you know, so quickly with every passing year, there's just so much AI machine learning that can identify samples and immediately remove your song from all of these platforms for, you know, copyright infringement. So now, even if you post like a social media video on Facebook or YouTube, that isn't your song, you know, unless you pitch it way up or down, it's going to be gone in like hours. So there is sort of this ghost, ghost town graveyard of these, you know, random MP3s. And I'll have people connect with me who read the book and they'll email me like random, like hard files that they're like, I found this on my external hard drive. And it just, who knows how many people even have it? Like a thousand or less? Like that's kind of crazy. I I was wondering in a way if that makes if that were in some way made people think slightly less of the music in a way that's unfair, I know, but like, because it kind of, they might not have the MP3 or because they might've had a bad quality MP3 as opposed to, you know, a nice pristine 12 inch or, or you know, that they, they value it less. Is that something you've thought about? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think people's response to this really runs the gamut. Like there's some people that, even if now they have more like legitimate industry co-signed releases are still really nostalgic about it. Like A-Track, I mean, like he was so willing to speak on this and understands how much it is core to his rise to success and who he is and his label. Um, But I think like people outside of the scene while it was happening might've thought kind of poorly of it, but then at the same time, like for example, I just spoke with Lucky Me who like, you know, is owned by Warp. And so I even make kind of jokes in the book about like, unless you were like a Warp head in the US, like really digging for like underground stuff to do, this kind of was the biggest dance music moment in a long time that reached this really mainstream. But then even the Lucky Me people were like, you know, we were absolutely like, we loved Hollertronics and we were we were into this, even if it doesn't sound like the stuff that we release now. Um, so I think that even people that I would have categorized as like too avant-garde or too cool to like this sort of tacky neon moment, I think a lot of them actually were there, um, or using the blog's infrastructure for a slightly different sound, but still understood the sort of taste-making value in, in blogs and in throwing small weekly events. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting because I think someone like, Diplo, who um, I don't particularly like the music he makes these days, um, and he, you know, gets quite a lot of criticism these days. But back around this time, he was like the most fashionable thing there was. You know, mm-hmm. his, his mixes were were massive. I remember. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like Diplo is a, probably the number one person to come out of this. I mean, maybe I don't. I don't know who's bigger, Diplo or Steve Aoki, because. Like they're both so big, um, but Diplo is just still sort of like, I still hear that name all the time. So he's still kind of front of mind for me, but yeah, I mean, he through like Holotronics, the parties and the DJ duo really like established himself. And then he starts mad decent and it has exploded into, you know, producing music for Justin Bieber and playing like hundred thousand dollar gigs in Vegas every day or whatever he's up to. Um, he absolutely is one of the sort of stars to come out of this, like the music or not. 
You say um, at some point in the book, and I'm guessing this is tongue in cheek, uh, you say Americans ruined everything when you're talking about the relationship between <laughs> Bloghouse and uh, EDM. What, what do you think is the relationship between the two types of music? Yeah, I mean, I am joking, but I'm also not. And like, I feel like it's fine to say because I'm American. Um, I'm at least self-aware enough to know that. Um, yeah, I mean, so with, with Bloghouse... EDM is birthed. And I argue in the book that by 2011, around the release of Avicii's Levels, which I think is an amazing song, but is a good example for this, um, it's really reached like new levels and it will soon become the definitive young person music in America, more than pop and rap music. Later, it will be eclipsed by rap music and festivals will follow suit. Before this period, Vegas starts booking every DJ for these 30 plus thousand dollar nights um festivals are all the time Coachella also a tentpole event expands from one weekend to two selling out before the lineup is announced which really solidifies the fact that festival culture mainstream raving culture is now sort of a rite of passage of American youth more so than seeking out seeing a specific artist um and it's really really reached a mainstream but I think the reason why that happened it's always been fun. Those people would have always enjoyed it had they known about it. But Bloghouse for five or so years, which is very, very tiny blip, was kind of laying the groundwork when the industry wouldn't touch music because they were so turned off by Napster and they're like, we can't make money in music. How do we do it? Um, you know, the industry shift from like CDs and vinyl. They're like, what do we do with the internet? And then because they wouldn't really touch it, bloggers created their own media like independent artists were creating their own labels and like random curators and fans were creating their own PR and distribution network with these illegal file links, doing the work that all of these companies would have usually done, proving that there was a, you know, massive, massive international audience for this. So finally, five years later, the man comes around and they're like, okay, these people were kind of a proof of concept. Now let's do it at scale. And with that comes this really pristine studio quality of sound it kind of turns the sound up to 11 and we get things like American dubstep, Skrillex and what have you. Um, and we get all of these promotional companies undercutting these ma and pa little promoters to sell ticketed events. And I really focus on that on the book where it used to be like a party at a bar with no ticket. Maybe you pay at the door five, $10. Then it shifted to like concert culture. You have to plan this $40 ticket in advance and it's just completely different environment. Um, it wasn't really a ritual of I go to this Tuesday and then I go to this Saturday every week. It was like people coming from out of town because the community was just so much larger. So, you know, it really hit in every sort of category, like media goes from blogs to like companies are now starting their own blogs with more resources. And then you have labels and then you have like events, um, even like MySpace going out of favor for Facebook, which didn't have a musical component, like all of this stuff kind of creates this perfect storm, which then like uplifts the new era EDM to thrive. Final question. I'm wondering, do you miss that era? And if so, what do you miss about it? You know, if it was happening now, I don't even think I would be able to participate it in the same way that I did at the time, just because I'm older. Um, and I don't think I could ever 
access that level of like preciousness, which kind of makes me sad, but I've been trying to, it's obviously weird because of COVID and like the second things open, then they just close again. But after taking kind of a long hiatus and sort of going cold Turkey off of partying to go from like party girl to like sort of adult now in the last couple of years, I've been able to sort of dip my toe back in because I'm kind of an all or nothing person. And now I've sort of achieved balance where like I can go to a festival or I can go to a warehouse party, but I don't need to go until like 7 a.m. Um, so I've been kind of trying to find versions of things that remind me of this era. It doesn't sound the same and I don't want it to, but just like, you know, small communities throwing warehouse parties in LA or like people with radio shows or like, you know, people on the up and it's not the sort of blog crate digging I did then, but I'm trying to get back into being more in the know after kind of taking a backseat and just kind of only seeing what was being fed to me. So I do miss the thrill of like finding some new music and just loving it. But like, I don't know, like it's not the same at all because this is going to be in like an amphitheater, but I think that like, or not an amphitheater, but like a proper concert venue. I am like so deeply excited for the Fred again show in LA that like, it reminds me of like the just smiley excitedness of me being like 20 years old, being excited to like see Simeon Mobile Disco or something. And I'm like, okay, I still have it in me. It's still there.